This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Don't you understand? It doesn't have to be like this. You have to help. It's gotten out of control. It's too big. It is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure, go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the broadcast, friends, for Sunday, April 1st, 2012. Wednesday marks the 44th anniversary of the assassination of uh, perhaps one of the world's greatest prophets for nonviolent change. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., of course, uh, was the most powerful, eloquent champion of the poor and oppressed in the United States in their history. And at the height of his fame in the mid-60s seemed to offer a, a real possibility of new and, and, and a radical beginning to uh, or for a change in the USA. In 1968, he was assassinated. The movement for social and economic change has never uh, recovered. And we're going to talk about that assassination for the full two hours. I raced in here into the studio just in a nick of time. We were um, just able to connect with William Francis Pepper for a, for a brief chat, and we'll play you uh, that um, interview towards the, the tail end of the program. Uh, William Francis Pepper uh, is, is pivotal to this story. He was James Earl Ray's uh, lawyer for the last 10 years. James Earl Ray, of course, the alleged gunman. Most of us uh, learned in school that he was a gunman. We've read about it. This continues to be uh, um, this myth, I guess, if you will, uh, propagated by society, uh, the media, uh, our culture, our society, that that James Earl Ray was the shooter. Well, we're going to hear an entirely different uh, story tonight. In any event, William Francis Pepper was James Earl Ray's uh, lawyer uh, and held a civil trial or represented the King family in a civil trial. It was the uh, the wrongful uh, death suit, the King family versus Lloyd Jowers and un- other non- unknown conspirators. He held that, that, that trial, rather, was held in 1999 in Memphis. And after four weeks... Of, um, of testimony by some 70 witnesses, the jury came back after deliberating for 59 minutes and essentially exonerated James Earl Ray and awarded the King family the requested sum of $100. And we'll get into some of the details of that trial. Uh, and uh, we'll also speak with John uh, Judge, Washington-based 
uh, researcher, activist. He's uh, a member of 9-11 Citizens Watch and also uh, a member of the Coalition on Political Assassinations. And he's been working very hard uh, to uh, to see the release of, of very important documents relating to this case. We'll, we'll speak to John Judge a little bit later. First, however, we're going to speak with James Earl Ray's younger brother, Jerry Ray, is an activist and unintentional witness to the events surrounding the Martin Luther King Jr. assassination. He's appeared on Good Morning America, The Phil Donahue Show, uh, uh, on and on. He lives in McMinnville, Tennessee, and he joins me on the line right now. Jerry, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm just fine. Thank you for inviting me on as a guest. Well, thank you for uh, for being with us. And uh, also we have on the line Tamara Carter is an activist, a teacher, an independent researcher of the Martin Luther King Jr. and JFK assassinations. She's also a charter member and organizer of the Coalition on Political Assassination. And uh, she joins us. Uh, she, uh, together with Jerry, are the authors of A Memoir of Injustice by the younger brother of James Earl Ray. Tamara, welcome. Well, good evening, and thank you so much for having Jerry and I this evening. My pleasure. Listen, let's quickly, uh, uh, Tamara, I'll let you handle this one. Just uh, for those not familiar, even with the sort of official version of events, uh, uh, take us uh, back to uh, the Lorraine Motel, April 4th, 1968, and uh, tell us what happened. Well, um, I I will start with where James Earl Ray was at the time. James Earl Ray had escaped from the Jefferson City Prison. He escaped on April 23, 1967, and he was on the lam at the time. He robbed a Kroger grocery store. And at the same time when he was on the lam, Dr. King was killed at the Rain Hotel. And in a nutshell, James Earl Ray was the patsy. He was framed in this killing by his handler, who we know is Raul. And that's that's the short of the story, and we can get more in detail later. All right. Now, Jerry, you're the, uh, the younger brother of James, uh, James Earl Ray. Yes. Obviously, over the years, much has been said about your brother, and I'm guessing much of it untrue. The first thing that pops out in most people's mind was, and this is the official version that we, we've heard and has been drilled into our heads, into our consciousness, that James Earl Ray was an avowed racist, and that was the motive for killing Dr. King. What can you tell us about your brother? Was he a racist? I'll tell you, they, 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 uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny in a way, it's sad in a way, but it's kind of funny that the Justice Department and the FBI, <clears throat> they try to make him out a racist. They come up and, with all these stories, <clears throat> and in fact, uh, the... Uh, uh, in George McMillan's book, uh, who's an FBI writer, they uh, had James, uh, every time Dr. King would come on, uh, be on the TV news, that James would get in front of a TV set and said, I'm going to kill that in when I get out. I'm Somebody had to kill that in. And uh, that was in the George McMillan's book. And a reporter from the Kansas City Star went down and interviewed the warden and mentioned that time, and the warden said, well, that's awful strange. We didn't have no TV sets in there. Right, and I appreciate you using uh, and... and then, then another thing, a racist yes. thing they had, and they showed a picture of this girl in Life magazine I remember back in 68. And uh, shortly after Dr. King got assassinated, 
they had a picture of this girl. She's a cocktail waitress out in L.A. And she said James came in there, and uh, and uh, that uh, he made a statement about blacks. He's running down blacks, and he said that, uh, and she stuck up for him. And he said, uh, "I'll take you out to Watts and drop you off." Watts is an old black area in L.A. Yes. <clears throat> so uh, some reporter interviewed her, and I want to get more details on it. And she said she didn't say nothing like that. She said they had that story in Life magazine. She said James did come in and sit down, didn't talk to nobody, had a couple drinks and left. And she said that was all made up with. And they said that she said different things. In other words, the media so, so was. That's, that's, that's how they bring up all this whole racial stuff. Right. And none of it sticks. Now, admittedly, though, uh, Jerry, you came from a, a, a family that was involved in petty crime. What was, um, what was your brother like? Uh, I mean, he, he was a petty criminal. He, he, would, you know, he held up a grocery store. But tell, give us some insight into what he was like uh, as a man. Well, I, I per, per, uh, once he w- I went to work uh, back when he was 16, he went into Alton, Illinois. We were living in a little town called Ewing, Missouri. And he went to work in Alton, Illinois. That's where my grandmother and my, and uh, her son, uh, our uncle, was at. He worked in the tannery there. And uh, so I didn't actually see him. After that, he came home on, when he joined the Army, I think, in '46. Uh he came home on leaving that, but uh, uh, I didn't hardly ever see him after that because uh, uh, starting in 1950, I started getting in trouble in and out of jails, and uh, and I didn't know we lost touch, and uh, I didn't see him. Actually, he came to visit me when I was in prison back in 1954, and that's the first time I'd seen him since he was in the Army back in the 40s. Then uh, he came to visit me. Then, uh, then when I got out of prison, he was in Jefferson City, and I went down to visit him. So that's the only time that we came in contact until he escaped in 1967. And, my yeah, and you know, I just want to interject this while I'm thinking of it, Richard. Um, you know, you're asking a little bit about the Ray type of a crime. Yes. You know, the Rays basically did crimes on people they wouldn't get in trouble for. They robbed illegal gambling operations. They didn't usually use weapons. And I will give you an example of one of Jerry's crimes that are, that are very silly and, and a little bit, a little, you know, they have a little sense of humor to him. And Jerry can tell it better than me, but I, I'll just, Jerry, you can add to this if you want, of course. But um, Jerry saw a um, prostitute with a John, and this John was married. He had a ring on his finger and so they were going at it, as he says, and he puts on a leather glove and busts in the window. And not only does he grab the guy's wallet to get his money, but he also grabs his pants because he thinks it might be kind of funny that the guy's pants, he won't go home in the pants he left in, and his wife will find out. So it was like a, a, you know, a, a crime that was totally unarmed and kind of humorous and something he couldn't get in trouble for. So that's the type of petty Silly crimes the Ray family was famous for. Tamara Carter and Jerry Ray, uh, my guest. Jerry, the younger brother of James Earl Ray, alleged uh, shooter of Martin Luther King Jr., who died, uh, well, coming up on the 44th anniversary on Wednesday. Tamara Carter, activist, teacher, and uh, the author of Jerry Ray, A Memoir of Injustice by the Younger Brother of James Earl Ray. Uh, Tamara, how did you get uh, hooked up with Jerry Ray? Well, I am... 
was at the political um I was at the coalition of political assassination as a presenter because I um am a King researcher and also John F. Kennedy and I met Jerry and we got to be friends over the years and he'd had trouble writing his book. He had writers that just lost interest, writers that turned out to be government writers, and he asked me to write his book for him and um after a considerable amount of consideration, I agreed. Let's set the scene now. Again, we'll go back to the Lorraine Motel, April 4th, 1968, and uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., of course, is in town. Uh, there is a, um, a t- you know, to sort of buttress and support the uh, the, the union representing the, uh, the garbage workers there. Now, across from the Lorraine Motel, across the parking lot, is Jim's Grill, uh, a restaurant, and above that is kind of a, a flop house. Uh, was James Earl Ray there on April 4th? Was he at Jim's Grill or the Flophouse? Yes, he was at both. And why... Jerry, you want to yeah. tell about that? Why was your brother there, Jerry? Uh, uh, James uh, was uh, instructed to rent a room there, and uh, he uh, went there uh, and rented a room from Bessie Brewer, and... Uh, and uh, and that's uh, that's why he was there. He was instructed. He stayed at the Soda Motel the night before, and uh, this guy that called him Raul, uh was there and told him to. Uh, he picked up a gun that John James had bought in uh, in Alabama, and uh, and and, and uh, so he's instructed to rent a room there. So he was instructed first to buy a, a weapon in Alabama, and then yeah, he was instructed. That was a few days before that. And uh, in fact, uh, when James uh, went in there, he t- he got this gun and he took it back, and he said that uh, that uh, Raul said that wasn't the right kind, and he got another kind. Because he was supposed to. Be, did, did James think that he was part of some petty gun deal? That uh, that yeah, he thought he was he's involved in some kind of gun deal. See, every when he met this guy, called himself Raul. He met him in Canada. Uh, he made all these trips from New Orleans to L.A., all over the United States, and even into Mexico. And uh, he figured he was hauling dope because he'd leave a car a certain place and he'd pick it up later on. Say. And so then when this gun thing came up, you know, that uh, uh, he thought he was involved in some kind of gun-running thing. So. Tamara, do we know who Raul was? Was he, uh, was he on the payroll of the FBI? Was he operating under directions of uh, J. Edgar Hoover? Well, we do not exactly know who he is. We haven't been able to pin him down and identify him. But we are able to surmise, and we are through his connections, that he was involved with the CIA and the FBI because when Ray was using his aliases, those aliases were CIA-connected and FBI-connected. Interesting. But a lot of times um, Jerry has been accused of being Raul over the years. They've tried to pass it on to him. But as far as identifying, we have not found him in person yet. All right. Uh, why don't we uh, step away here momentarily? When we come back, uh, we'll talk about what happened uh, immediately following the the fatal shot that felled Dr. Martin Luther King. Where did James Earl Ray go? How did he react? Why did he react the way that he did? Why did he plead guilty? Uh, and uh, we'll we'll follow along in that vein. Tamara Carter is an activist, teacher, independent researcher on the Martin Luther King Jr. and JFK assassinations. She's the author of Jerry Ray, A Memoir of Injustice by the Younger Brother of James Earl Ray. And we have the aforementioned Jerry Ray 
on the line as well. Coming up later, John Judge and Dr. and uh, William Francis Pepper, the attorney for James Earl Ray, joins us as we commemorate the 44th anniversary of the assassination of perhaps the greatest prophet of nonviolent change the world has ever known. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show here on AM740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills door sons of former slaves and the sons of former slaves will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood? I have a dream. My four little children one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Welcome back. Jerry Ray, younger brother of James Earl Ray, on the line, as is Tamara Carter, teacher, activist, independent researcher of the MLK assassination. Uh, together, uh, they have published Jerry Ray, a memoir of injustice by the younger brother of James Earl Ray. Now, it is uh, there seems to be some interesting evidence uh, that James Earl Ray had some help busting out of prison, Missouri State Prison back in 1967. Tamara, can you tell us a little bit about that? I think I'll pass that to Jerry, if you don't mind. Certainly. Jerry, who helped your brother get out of prison? Uh, my other brother, John Ray, uh, he, uh, he went down to visit him uh, a couple of days before he broke out, and uh, he was supposed to pick him up. And, uh, and uh, so John went down and... And, and the, uh, the escape was successful, but John didn't know that. He went down to, to the spot he's supposed to pick him up at, and he wasn't there. So he drove on back to St. Louis. See, I was working in Chicago at the time. John was in St. Louis. And when John got back, James got the payphone and called John up. See, and then John went back down and picked him up and brought him to Chicago. And uh, then we all three spent the night together at the Fairview Hotel in Chicago. Then John drove back to St. Louis. We each gave James $100, and uh, and uh, that was in 1967. And then uh, John drove back to St. Louis. Then James went to work close to where I worked at. Uh, and uh, Okay, but aside from your brother, uh, aside from John, uh, Jerry, your brother, uh, and maybe, Tamara, you can uh, jump in here as well, because I, I know that this, I, I believe it came to light, uh, if not during the uh, the wrongful death suit, King versus Lloyd Jowers, um, perhaps later on. Tamara, didn't come to light that that uh, there was significant um, monies provided uh, by perhaps Hoover to, to help get James Earl Ray out of prison in 67? Exactly, exactly. That if you follow the money trail, it points directly at Hoover. Although his brother did physically help him, Hoover was definitely involved. So the idea then, uh, Jerry and Tamara, was they had at, at some point decided in 1967 that this was going to be the guy, they, the patsy, they were going to frame for the, for the murder of MLK. The conspiracy started well in advance of 68. Why do you suppose they chose, and I say they, and let's just say 
let's call it the way, you know, the evidence seems to point. Why do you suppose the FBI, the CIA, and other government agencies inside the United States decided James Earl Ray is going to be our patsy? Well, I say it's hard for me to actually say, you know, because everything is speculation. And, uh, but uh, <clears throat> they want somebody that uh, uh, probably that uh, nobody would believe and a career criminal and, uh, and somebody that most people would look down on. See, they, they're not going to get some successful people to do something like that. It'd be somebody in the underworld or with a criminal background. So, but uh, And, and also, of, make sure to tell about your father, Jerry. Yeah, and, uh, you know, my dad, my dad, he had got out of prison uh, back in the 20s before he met my mother. And he was proled, and he jumped proled the morning he got out. And that's why we got kids born. I got brothers and sisters born in three different names, Ray, Ryan, and Reigns. And uh, because uh, every time he moved, he changed his name. <clears throat> because back when he done time, he's in Port Madison Highway Prison. Back then, they beached up, and they, they really treated you bad. It's not like nowadays. And after he'd done a couple of years, he got a pro, and he got out of highway. He, he never slipped foot in highway again. <clears throat> and when, when they was looking for James, they found out that the old, the, my dad, uh, he was a pro later from highway, although it had been uh, over 40 years ago. But uh, And he also, they, uh, the FBI said, you know, he's wanted for a pro and they could just send him back there, say. And... Uh, that's one of the reasons when James was in the, in the Memphis jail, they said he was in, going to indict me for being Raul, and uh, and they was going to send my dad back to Highway Prison. Well, back then my dad was in his seventies, you know, and they had killed him. Say, so uh, yeah. well, there's see, a whole lot see, of Rich, stuff well, going He's on. a perfect patsy because, you know, there's a threat of, you know, even though it's pretty unrealistic. But but the family really believed, you know, you know, James really believed that his father could go back to prison, so he was frightened of that, and, and that really was a big concern. I think they knew they had that over on him. So the moment he got out of prison, you know, April twenty third, 67, they basically owned him, directed him, told him where to go, what to do, etc. Exactly. Okay, so... Yeah, the, main, the main thing, that the, the FBI is the one doing all the investigation, and they're the ones that hated him. Because, like I told the guy, uh, James didn't send the Hoover no letter telling him suicide's the only way out. Hoover had a memo sent to Dr. King telling him that suicide was the only way out. And he had all of his rooms bugged every place he wanted. He had him, his rooms bugged, had him tailed, and everything else. See, so uh, if uh, I, I think they knew that he, when he was going to be assassinated and, uh, and they was involved in it. Let's let's go back to uh, uh, the Lorraine Motel, Jim's Grill, and we'll we'll talk about uh, the owner of Jim's Grill in a moment, obviously. But but uh, when James O'Ray was was ordered to go to the the flop house above Jim's Grill and, and and rent a room there for the night and deliver a weapon as part of some petty gun deal he thought he was involved with, when he heard the shot ring out across the lot and and, and felling uh, uh, Reverend King who was out on his balcony at the Lorraine Motel. What did James Earl Ray do? He wasn't even there when the shot rang he out. He was not, okay. See, what, what happened was uh, a, uh, a day before, uh, he, had, he had had a flat tire, 
and uh, he had it in his trunk, see, and uh, and so he had this flat tire. And Raul, the guy that uh, the guy that uh, picked up the gun from him the night before at the Soda Motel, and uh, he uh, uh, told him that he won't use that car later on. So he had uh, he 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 went out to get the tire fixed. He went to the service station to get the tire fixed, and he wasn't even in the in the flop house when the shot was fired. And uh, see that uh, that all come out later on. See. Okay, so Tamara, he he hears the report on the radio in the car radio, was it? And he'd yes. he, he'd he'd been he'd been fingered almost immediately, was he not, for the crime? Oh yes. Oh, yes. How soon? I mean, it's interesting because there are some parallels, obviously, with with Oswald and, and Kennedy, uh, uh, and and again, we you know, even with the hijackers in nine eleven, it's amazing how they were able to. They don't see the event coming, but they're able to identify the perpetrators. Uh, almost immediately. How quickly were were the police announcing, or whomever, that James Earl Ray was wanted in connection with, with the uh, the shooting death of Martin Luther King? Was it like... I'll let Jerry outline it, but I just want to mention they didn't say James Earl Ray. They said Eric Starville Galt. They announced his alias. And then when they announced that alias, Jerry knew that Eric Starville Galt was his brother because his brother told him he was going to use that alias from that point forward, remember when he told you they went to the hotel and he gave them yes. $100 each? So, Jerry, can you tell a little bit more about that, when it went from Eric Starville-Galt to James Earl Ray? <clears throat> well, it went to Eric Starville-Galt. Now, John, my brother John, didn't know he was using that name. And uh, uh, and when he started using that name is when he got back. See, uh, uh, after he went to work at the uh, restaurant there for a while, and uh, he saved up his money. Then he went to Canada. When he went to Canada, he had no. He had bought an old Dodge there, and uh, and so he went to Canada. When he came back in September of '67, he went over in June. I think it was '67. And uh, when he came back, he called me up, and and I he, he told me to come in Chicago. I worked in the suburbs called Northbrook. And he said, "Don't uh, don't drive in." He said, "I want to give you my car." And so we spent the night together, and I drove him to the train station. And he told me, he "said From now on, I'll be known as Eric Escolt." And uh, and he told me, he said, "I'll send." Uh, he told me he had he left a few articles in the uh, car, that, and he wanted me to send them down to him the general delivery in in Birmingham, Alabama, and to Eric Starville Galt. See. Now, Jerry, did did when he was explaining this to you, did he at all? Did he ever mention this figure, Raoul? Did he ever say why he was using an alias? Or, or? yeah, he, he 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 told me then. He said he met this uh, uh, guy in uh, Canada, and uh, he, he, as we said, Raoul, he said from now on, I'm going to be using his name, Eric Starville Galt or Eric S. Galt, and uh, he said from now on that to uh, be my name. See, so. Uh, he said that he had plenty of money on him, man. He was a real pleasure because he paid for everything. Uh, he paid for the hotel room that night, and he paid for all the meals and the drinks and everything else. See. Did he say and what so he was he doing for Raul? What was he doing for Raul at that point? He figured, he, he figured, uh, see, everything, they don't tell you what all is going on, but he just figured he's hauling drugs or something, you know, because uh, he was told, to go to uh, Birmingham and get a late model car, not a new car, a late model car, and he was given a few thousand dollars to do that, Wesley. 
And so he went down there and he bought that 66 Mustang. And uh, and uh, Raul would have him make trips to Mexico, New Orleans, and all over the United States, and and even in, uh, to Mexico. And he figured that uh, he was hauling drugs. I mean, he didn't know anything. He didn't see him, but he just right. he'd, he'd be instructed to drop the car off there and pick it up the next day or something. Uh, Tamara, how soon after? It was announced that it was, in fact, a, a James Earl Ray wanted in connection, or or the alias. Did James uh, flee the country? Uh, he he got on board a plane and, and flew to England. How 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 soon after the King shooting did that happen? Jerry, do you remember those exact dates? Well, the only thing I can remember is is, is what James told me. He said okay. when he was uh, driving out of uh, out of Memphis. It came on the news. They was looking for a white guy in a white Mustang, and about Dr. King getting shot, and he knew he was being set up then, and so he drove to uh, straight to Atlanta, and he left his car and he got a a bus ticket thing it was to uh, Detroit, and he got into Canada, and uh, he didn't have no more. He he never had no more touch with this guy. With his guy called him Raul because he knew he was being set up. See. And so that's when uh, he finally uh, uh, left the country. Well, uh, Tamara, how does a, 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 a petty criminal afford to fly to to England? Now, that's a, that's a very good question, too, because re- like, even when Jerry said that Jimmy was flush with money, Jimmy meaning James Earl Ray, as the media called him, um, Jimmy was flush with money. He could pay for, you know, drinks and hotel rooms. So the money was coming through Raul, and I still think Raul was tied in with J. Edgar Hoover. And so he got to follow the money because, you know, Ray's never had a significant amount of money. Right, right. Yeah, you know, he bought that Mustang. Like I said, he paid two thousand dollars in cash for that Mustang, because back then, that's in '68, two thousand dollars quite a bit of money, and uh, he mm-hmm. paid. Uh, the guy that uh, owned the car, he had to have in the paper. And like the guy said, he didn't even try to get him down. And he asked $2,000, and James just paid him the $2,000 what he asked for. Because most time, if somebody asks for $2,000 for a car, you'll get for 1500 say. Right. And, and you know, Richard, it's interesting you asked about the cash, because they always try to pin Jerry on giving all this money to his brother, giving Jerry giving money to James, rather. And they would try to blame bank robberies on Jerry for funding him. And really, it was the FBI funding him because Jerry, I care to tell him about the Elton Bank robbery where they accused you of giving Jimmy all this money from the Elton Bank. You didn't even rob it. No, they that, that, that they claimed that uh, me and it, this is even the assassination committee, see, because they was going uh, with the FBI back in 1978. I was, uh, I was uh, speaking to go in front of the assassination committee to testify in front of Congress, and uh, and I and the first thing they did come up to me about me robbing the Alton Illinois Bank, see. And so, uh, uh, no, no, if I, let me back up. First, they claimed, when James went up and testified before me, they claimed, so we're going to prove that you and your brother uh, Jerry Ray robbed the Alton Illinois Bank. And as the money was used in this, in, to finance the assassination of Dr. King, well, uh, at the time, I was uh, in St. Louis when that came. I was watching it on TV. It was on live. And uh, 
So Mark Lane, who was representing my brother James Earl, Mark Lane, at a recess, he called up John Auble. John Auble was a TV reporter from St. Louis. And he said, why don't you take Jerry over to the Alton Illinois Bank and have him turn himself in? Because Congress said they can prove that Jerry Ray and James Earl robbed a bank. So the following day, me and John Auble, we drove over to the Alton Illinois Police Department. And I turned myself in, and uh, and the lieutenant said, well, uh, 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 what are you here for? I said, I'm turning myself in for robbing the Alton Illinois Bank in 1967. And he said, are you here to confess to robbing the bank? I said, I can't confess something I didn't do, but I said, Congress accused me of robbing the bank, so I'm here to turn myself in. He said, you never was a suspect. There you go. All right. Uh, and you mentioned that uh, your brother... Uh, immediately after the shooting, made his way to uh, Atlanta, then Detroit, and then ultimately on to Toronto, and there, that's the Toronto connection. He did uh, stay here on Ossington Street uh, for a short while, and then he relocated to Dundas Street West, for those of you in those areas. A little bit of, uh, a little bit of history, a connection to the MLK uh, assassination, although not a connection to the, uh, the real gunman we're, we're finding out. Uh, listen, another quick timeout. We'll come back, continue to discuss... Um, the MLK assassination with Tamara Carter and Jerry Ray, younger brother of James Earl Ray. We'll uh, find out why he confessed to a murder he didn't commit when we come back. Stay with us. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, Call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Let freedom ring and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring. From the mighty mountains of New York, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of our children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Welcome back. Jerry Ray, younger brother of James Earl Ray, and Tamara Carter on the line. Joining us in the next hour, John Judge with the Coalition on Political Assassinations, and also William Francis Pepper, the lawyer of the late James Earl Ray, and uh, a man who has really dedicated the last quarter century of his life uh, trying to prove James Earl Ray's innocence and also heavily involved in uh, uh, RFK uh, assassination research. He is the uh, the lawyer for Sirhan Sirhan. That's upcoming. Uh, right now, uh, Jerry, let me ask you this. Now, I know I understand that, you know, the, the, the purpose of writing uh, the book, a memoir uh, of injustice, was to exonerate your, your older brother. But let me ask you on a personal note, when you hear the speeches of, of Martin Luther King Jr., how, how do you feel about the man? Well, I feel that this is the first comment I made uh, when uh, Dr. King got uh, shot. I said, I would have jumped in front and took the bullet because I love to hear that guy talk. 
And uh, there's two people that I used to love to hear to talk. And every time they come on TV, I'd watch them. And they're just they're completely opposite of each other. But they're both brilliant speakers with George Cody Wallace and Dr. Martin Luther King. They're both they're the great orators, both of them. And uh, obviously, you know, you, you got to spend some time with your with your brother uh, while he was in prison and towards into the tail end of his life. Did he ever comment on what he thought of of um, Dr. King? No, he never. He never did. Uh, you know, uh, people think we go in there and we plot because I used to visit him all the time. And uh, but uh, he he mostly just talked about his escape and trying to get out. Or, or trying to get in the court and see that was what we would work on. Uh, I know all them escapes, you know, every one of them except one I was involved in, and just like he escaped from uh, John right. was involved in the one escape there. So we was mostly uh, involved in either trying to get in the court or trying to prove he's innocent, or if not, uh, to escape from prison. Tamara, why did... Um, but Jimmy was very fond of the King family, Coretta Scott King, after he was in prison for a while, and Dexter King. Yes, he convinced Dexter the, of his innocence. Uh, yes, Dexter visited him in prison. Well, well, see, you know, you know, getting back to that, uh, I forget what, it was in 1965 or 66, I can't remember exactly... But I got a call from the New York Times reporter, some lady on the New York Times, asked me, uh, started to ask me about Dr. King and uh, and Credit uh, King and uh, Dexter and that. I'm sorry, and did you I say 19... I'm sorry, Jerry, just to clarify, did you say 1995? No, 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 19... Uh, yeah, yeah, around that time. Okay. Uh, shortly before James died. Okay, so he and, died uh, in 97. In, in, in 98. And, 98, uh, right. Uh, I got a call from this New York Times reporter, and they asked me if I would talk to the King family. And I said, no, I don't want to talk to the King family. I said, they've been through enough, I said, without talking to me. I said, that, uh, they'd think my brother um, killed her dad or, or Coretta's uh, husband. And the New York Times reporter said, no, they don't believe that. I said, well, if they don't believe it, I said, I'd be glad to talk to them. So uh, uh, later on, I think it was in ninety. Six or seven, I, I, can't, I get years mixed up now. It's been so long ago. Uh, I met Creta and uh, Dexter King in the courtroom down in Memphis in, when Judge Joe Brown was ruling on having the gun retested, you know. Yes. And uh, I just spoke to Creta shortly, but me and Dexter became pretty close, and I met him several times afterwards. In fact, I was with Dr. Pepper when... Uh, me and him and uh, Dexter went in and seen James, and that's when you seen that thing on TV where uh, he asked, uh, Dexter asked uh, James if he killed his father. He said, no, he said, I believe you, and my family believes you, see. And Interesting. In fact, uh, Coretta, Coretta went to see President Bill Clinton and uh, asked President Clinton to appoint a special prosecutor because she didn't believe that James Earl was a shot her husband, and uh, instead, instead, uh, Bill Clinton point no special prosecutor. What he is <laughs> a joke in a way, and the credit said the same thing. He had the FBI to investigate the FBI, in other words, the Justice Department, <laughs> the ones that probably did the killing 
they had to investigate themselves. So Tamara, so, why uh, did? Sorry, Jerry. Tamara, why did James Earl Ray uh, plead guilty? Well, he pled guilty because Percy Foreman, one of his attorneys, um, actually wanted him to plead guilty. Well, the story goes like this: Percy Foreman, who they call the Texas Tiger, had a real ego and he was a real drinker. And he said that the case was so simplistic that his granddaughter could try it and win it. Well, his granddaughter at that time happened to be five years old. So anyway, he didn't practice the case. He didn't work on it. Then all of a sudden he did a complete turnaround. Someone must have got to him. And he said, no, 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 you're not going to win this case. They're going to give you the electric chair. And so then he, he pled guilty. To avoid the death penalty. To avoid the death penalty, he just—he was scared to go in the electric chair because the Texas Tiger had him convinced. First, he had him convinced that it was not a problem, and then he did a complete bout face and said he was going to. And, and, and I also told that uh, if he didn't plead guilty, me and my dad was going to prison. I was going to prison for being Raul, and my dad parole uh, Benzie was revoked. He was going to send him back to highway. Yep, they brought that up again about Jerry going to jail for being Raul and for. Um, the father going back to prison for his crime in the 20s, in the 1920s. Uh, Tamara, when did you become convinced that James Earl Ray was not the gunman? At uh, what point? It was, a, it was a long process, actually, because I've worked on the King case since I've been 14 years old. And I started to make connections, and, and I thought, you know, Ray had a, you know, involvement of some sorts. I knew he probably wasn't the shooter, but then the more I worked on the case, the more I, it were, the truth revealed itself to me because the facts weren't adding up. But I would say what really, really put the nail on the coffin that, that, that James Earl Ray did not have anything to do with this assassination was when Judge Joe Brown had the rifle tested and that definitely the bullet that killed King, the slug that killed King, did not come through that rifle that Ray had purchased. That was, that was proof enough to me. Now, the, um, the gentleman, Lloyd, well, I, I, I may perhaps should back up and not use that term, but Lloyd Jowers, yes. who is the owner of Jim's Grill. Correct, which, which is was right a, below Bessie Brewer's Flop House. And, and basically across the parking lot from the Lorraine Motel. Correct. How does Lloyd Jowers figure into this story? Well, Lloyd Jowers um, actually had a trial in 1999, as you said in the lead into the show, it was a um, civil wrongful death suit on behalf of the King family. And you may notice the United States press gave it a flash of coverage. And the jury found Lloyd Jowers, and then they said, and other unknown conspirators guilty of the murder of King. And when they made that decision, they said that, he w that they were the murder of King, not, not James Earl Ray. So the Jowers trial then exonerated Ray. And, J and Jowers testified by deposition, and he said as much that he admitted that James Earl Ray was not the gunman. Yes, he definitely did. You know, they also had a... So he's had two trials, and both of them, uh, James Earl was acquitted. There was the yeah, it was a mock HBO. TV trial, a mock TV yeah, trial, HBO yeah. mock trial. Yeah, and uh, the government was that the prosecutor was an ex uh, ex uh, federal prosecutor, Whitman Young. And had Bill Pepper was the uh, attorney for James Earl, and that was shown in on in uh, April of 1993, and uh, had a jury, black, 
white, male and female, and they all voted not guilty. Yes. I just want to tell you just a little bit more about, you know, about Lloyd Jowers. Yes. Just so the viewers can learn a little bit about him. His grill, you know, was it was a local dive. It was a local hangout for Memphis police and that sort of people. And also Lloyd Jowers, he did have ties with the Memphis underworld. And so, I mean, is there a canceled check, uh, a, a money trail linking Lloyd Jowers and his, his, his mobsters to the FBI, or is it not that simple? It's not that simple, and that is something that really you'll be able to learn more from Dr. Pepper. That is his specialty because, you know, he was, you know, he participated in that trial directly. Yeah, and for, we didn't have a lot of time. We had to pre-record uh, with uh, with uh, Bill Pepper just before the That's show right. went to air, so we didn't get too much detail. But um, and we can get into it as well with with John Judge. John um, Judge, yes, yes. Yes. So, so Jowers. Now, was it a coincidence that he happened to own the the grill across the street from uh, the Lorraine Motel, where there'd be a, a, a clear shot at Dr. King, or or did he purchase it later, or how did that work? Do we know? Well, I do know he owned it way before then. I think it would be more of a plan of where to put King. You know, the, the grill was already there, but the, you know, and so was the motel. So I, I do believe, and a lot of other researchers believe, that, you know, they put King at that hotel because of, lo- because of the location of Jim's grill. Let's go back to, uh, to your brother, uh, Jerry. James Earl Ray is apprehended in Europe uh, and brought back. How did they catch him? Uh, he, uh, from what I read and uh, everything, you know, the official report was that uh, he got a passport in the name of Sneed, and they had spelled the last name wrong. And he went from uh, Canada to England to Portugal, then to, then uh, then he went back to England, and uh, and in the meantime they had. Uh, they had uh, uh, found out in Canada that this guy that used the name of Sneed uh, uh, was actually James Earl. So they they arrest him at the London airport. Now, of course, in the media, uh, the the media reports were that your brother was trying to make his way to Rhodesia, uh, which is now, of course, Zimbabwe. Um, uh, and uh, the, playing up the idea that uh, Rhodesia was run by, you know, a, a racist white uh, Africans, uh, and that this would be, you know, an ideal place for him. Do you yeah. remember? Do you recall that? Uh, yeah, oh, yes, I recall. Definitely. Was, definitely. What, what James told me that when he went to uh, Portugal, recently he didn't stay in Portugal because he couldn't communicate with most of the people because they didn't speak English. And so he went back to England, and he wanted to get the country that uh, that does, you know, uh, English speaking, where you know you could you could communicate with the people. So he didn't want to get to some country where nobody spoke English, obviously. So that's why he left Portugal and went back to England. But there was and never any plan. There was never any plan for him to travel to Rhodesia. Oh well, there, he, the, James Orway's ultimate goal was to trap. They they try to pin him up with racism again, but. His ultimate goal was to go somewhere English-speaking that didn't have an extradition treaty with the United States. That was his ultimate goal, and that country, that fit the bill. Rhodesia did. Okay, understood. All right, let's, uh, let's um, uh, talk a little bit about, uh, again, the, the, the trial and the evidence that came forth in the wrongful death suit. 
Uh, what other piece of damning evidence came forth in that trial? Uh, you, well, the, you, only, the, the only thing they had, see, when they uh, when uh, the bolt, but when the shot was fired uh, from the uh, bathroom window there, uh, the person that fired the shot uh, came by this room and. Uh, and uh, Charlie Stevens was passed out drunk on the bed, and the Grace Stevens, Grace Walden was her actual name, and she's a common law wife of uh, Charlie Stevens. And uh, she seen the person; she looked him right in the face when he walked by. And uh, so when the, when the police ran up there, she gave a description of the guy she's seen you now. And uh, and so uh, they they took her. And put her, and put her in a mental institution, see, under assumed name, and they got Charlie Stevens, who didn't see nobody. He was passed out drunk, and they using him as a, a thing to claim it was James, you know. So, and, uh, so the woman that that, that that could have positively Id- identified the shooter as not being James Earl Ray was taken by authorities and shut and shut up in a in a, in a mental institution. Yeah, and, and and Mark Lane and uh, who's that other guy? too, the the black uh, civil rights guy that helped uh, Mark Lane get her out of the, uh, the uh, in in uh, out of the uh, out of the uh, institution there. In fact, but Mark, in fact, Mark I, was attorney. In fact, I went down and seen her after Mark Lane got her out of the institution. And Mark Lane at at that time he moved and and lived in Memphis. He bought a house in Memphis. And uh, and she lived with him. Grace had lived with him, Mark Lane, after he got her out. And she told me, she said, Jerry, said, I spent them years in the mental institution because I wouldn't identify your brother. She said, I'll say right today, it wasn't your brother that I saw that came out of that bathroom. Uh, Tamara, the... Uh the suggestion, obviously, you know, the name of the the, the suit is, uh, you know, the wrongful death suit was uh, the King family versus Lloyd Jowers and other unknown conspirators. How high up the 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 chain does the the planning of this assassination go? We mentioned the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, I mean, obviously, something like this would seem couldn't occur without the cooperation of the Memphis Police Department. Who else is caught up in this? You know, by no way could it gone out. You know, the Memphis police were definitely involved. That you know, that's with the Jim's Grill connection. And actually, Jim probably had the smallest involvement of all the conspirators. He was probably the low end of the chain. He claims that he's the one that took the rifle from the person who shot King, and he claims it was a police officer, Memphis police officer, that shot King. But so those are the players. You got the sharpshooter. You got the person that helped hide the rifle and cover it up. But there was what you said before, and I think you make the best point of the entire evening, that that money had to come from somewhere, and that money certainly didn't come from the Memphis police and some grill owner, Lloyd Jowers, and the poor Ray family. It came from the FBI. If you follow the money trail, that's where the aliases come from, and that's where the money comes from. I um, um, had an occasion to travel down to uh, South Texas, and I interviewed... uh, uh, the uh, the author of the elite serial killers of Lincoln, uh, JFK, MLK, and RFK, mm-hmm. and uh, um, whose name I'm embarrassed to say escapes me. He's uh, I've had him on many times, but uh, he uh, said that he has uncovered and has seen uh, a, the canceled check from an escrow account uh, 
belonging to oil magnate E.L. Hunt and Jowers, Lloyd Jowers. Are you familiar with that? Oh, are you talking about Galen Ross? Galen Ross, thank you. Okay, okay. Thank you. Yes, you know, I, I, I'm familiar with his work, but I'm, I have never seen that check, and I would like to, you know, explore into that further myself. Jerry, do you know about that, about the no, check? No, I don't, I don't know nothing about the, the check or the, or the person you mentioned or the author. Mm-hmm. But um, he does a lot of work, and he does a lot of work into a different assassinations. He's really very well versed. But I mean, ultimately, the, the the motive here was it because Dr. King was speaking out against the war in Vietnam. It was that the final straw. Yep, exactly. Because first of all, he was just a Negro preacher. You know, was just taking care of poor people and taking care of, you know, civil rights. He wasn't getting in the way of the machine. But once he spoke out against the Vietnam War, that's when they started to put, the FBI put a trace on him, when they started to, you know, ask him to commit suicide, when they tried to, you know, show Coretta that he was having affairs. That's when it all started. And I do believe you're right about that. Well, that's interesting because it was only about a year prior uh, in 67, when he first uh, learned about, you know, the plight of children in, in, in Vietnam, thanks again to William Pepper, who, who um, uh, you know, had published a photographic essay in Ramparts magazine showing the victims of napalm. Dr. Yep. King then calls William Francis Pepper. They strike up a friendship. So, so the timing is interesting. It's just a, about a year before his assassination that he starts talking about the war in Vietnam. Yep, exactly, exactly. I think that turned Lyndon Johnson against him. It turned a lot of people against him because they was, they was into that war, you know, in the, the Vietnam, and it it went on for all them years, and finally, uh, finally they got to stop all them people that they criticized. Jane Fonda, all them people, Muhammad Ali, and all that. They was all right. I went along with them on that. Just looking here at the timeline here. So we have uh, April fourth, nineteen sixty-seven. Uh, uh, Dr. King speaks at Riverside Church, and that's when he launched his, his campaign against the war. And th- yes. about three weeks later, uh, Jerry, your brother is, uh, is, um, um, breaks out of prison in Missouri with, the evidence suggests, the assistance of some higher authority, perhaps the FBI, uh, and then the conspiracy set in place. So perhaps April 4th, Exactly one year to the day to his assassination, uh, the conspiracy was set in place. Tamara, yeah, what, else, what else can be done at this point? I mean, when you have a civil trial that exonerates uh, James Earl Ray, you have a, um, a mock TV trial with prosecutors, with witnesses, with a jury that exonerates James Earl Ray. And yet, it's, it's not widely... Uh, broadcast by the mainstream media, and and the official version remains: James Earl Ray killed Dr. Martin Luther King. Well, that's that's where the government got a lot of power, and that's where it is. But you know, the King family, after the uh, a civil trial down there, they said that they're satisfied now that uh, James Earl Ray didn't shoot uh, Dr. King, and from now on they're just going to let it go because. To to the King family, that was the final ruling when he uh, when he uh, found James Earl innocent. So 
they just staying out of it from now on. But, but as researchers, we're not satisfied. And as a matter of fact, the King family stands behind, on, behind us on this. There's two things we want to do, and they're rather connected. We want to release, we want to release all the files on the assassination and life of Martin Luther King, Jr., and we want to do that through an act. And John Judge and I co-authored a bill called the MLK Bill, and it was first introduced by Cynthia McKinney, and we are actively working on releasing it today. And then we also want to retest the rifle, clean it and retest it to prove that, to, you know, to put a final stamp that that bullet did not go through there. And if the bill passes, the great thing about the bill, it will release that rifle to Jerry Ray to be tested. So that's why the bill is so important, because the bill includes the testing of the rifle. Um, I'm wondering, uh, Jerry, if I um, uh, I'll let, uh, I'll let you go, and I thank you so much for your time. Uh, and I'm wondering, Tamara, if I could uh, maybe have you stay on when we're joined by John Judge and we can get a little bit into the, uh, um, your efforts to have those files released. Sure, sure. Terrific. Jerry, again, I really appreciate your time. And uh, again, uh, the book is Jerry Ray, A Memoir of Injustice by the Younger Brother of James Earl Ray. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Good night and good night, Chief. Thank you. Good night, Jerry. All right. Uh, Tamara Carter stays put. When we come back, Washington-based activist, researcher, historian John Judge joins us as we discuss... His work, Tamara's work with the Coalition on Political Assassinations and their efforts to get vital uh, documents pertaining to uh, Martin Luther King's life and death released, and also a new test on the uh, so-called murder weapon. If you'd like to get on board this conversation, we'd love to have you. 416-360-0740, toll free from just about anywhere. Thunder Bay to the Carolinas, Maine to Minnesota, 1-866-740-4740. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. We shall overcome. Deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome. No, I join hands so often with students and others behind jail bars singing it. We shall overcome. Sometimes we've had tears in our eyes when we joined together to sing it, but we still decided to sing it. We shall overcome. No, before this victory is won, some will have to get thrown in jail some more, but we shall overcome. Don't worry about us. Before the victory is won, some of us will lose jobs, but we shall overcome. Before the victory is won, even some will have to face physical death. Physical death is the price that some must pay to free their children from a permanent psychological death. Then nothing shall be more redemptive. We shall overcome. Welcome back. Just a reminder, uh, we'll have a short conversation with William F. Pepper a little bit later in the program towards the tail end. He, of course, uh, um, a U.S. or a, uh, an attorney based in New York, best known for his efforts to prove the innocence of James Earl Ray. He's also the author of An Act of State, The Execution of Martin Luther King. And let me just read a, a, a quick uh, a quote on the back of the book. No one has done more than William F. Pepper to keep alive the quest for truth concerning the violent death of Martin Luther King, who in courageous and important words once said, quote, the greatest purveyor of violence on earth is my own government, end quote. 
In an act of state, Bill Pepper argues that very government violence was turned on America's greatest profit of nonviolent change. Uh, two other individuals uh, that have done a great deal uh, to keep alive this quest for truth concerning the violent death of Martin Luther King. Uh, join us. Uh, Tamara Carter uh, stays with us from the uh, the first hour, uh, author, historian, uh, teacher, author of A Memoir of Injustice. And now joining us on the line from Washington is John Judge, co-founder of 9-11 Citizen Watch, a grassroots watchdog group demanding transparency and a thorough investigation by the National Commission on Terrorist Acts upon the United States. He's also a co-founder of Committee for an Open Archives, Coalition on Political Assassinations, and a Committee for High School Options and Information on Careers, Education, and Self-Improvement. He wears a lot of hats. We're delighted to have him on the program tonight. John Judge, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Thank you. Say hello to Tamara Carter, who stays with us. Hi, Key. Hi, John. <laughs> the, um, tell us, first of all, uh, you're both heavily involved, obviously, in uh, Coalition on Political Assassinations. John, tell us what that organization uh, is all about. Uh, the Coalition uh, brought together several of the major groups that were working on the assassinations uh, at the time uh, when uh, we got the legislation passed for the John F. Kennedy Assassination uh, Records Act. And it was formed in part to uh, continue the search for truth in the case, but also to implement the release of what turned into now over 6.5 million pages of classified material uh, to the National Archives and the public. And um, the uh, Assassination Archive and Research Center here in D.C., a newly formed Citizens for Truth about the Kennedy assassination out in Los Angeles, and our Washington-based Committee for an Open Archives uh, joined together along with uh, hundreds of independent researchers uh, to form a coalition to work on not just the John Kennedy assassination, but all the major political assassinations of the 60s and since. And we've continued to hold uh, conferences and present the best new evidence over the years, annually in Dallas, but also on five-year anniversaries uh, in Memphis, Los Angeles, and more recently some conferences at the Ottoman Theater, which is now the Malcolm X and Betty Shabazz uh, Memorial Center and Museum in, in New York. Uh, and so COPA has uh, played a leading role in continuing to get files loose, uh, and uh, uh, T. Carter's been associated with us and also did work with me uh, uh, to draft a Martin Luther King Records Act based on the JFK Records Act uh, to get the files loose on the life and death of Dr. King. Uh, here's, I'll throw this out to, to either of you, both of you. Given that the evidence in this case would tend to implicate uh, individuals high up in 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 uh, you know the U.S. government, we're talking obviously uh, the, uh, the 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 Memphis Police Department, we're possibly implicating um, members of the FBI, the CIA. Who knows? Maybe this went all the way uh, to the White House. Given the, the, the intricate web of this conspiracy, why would you believe that they would, this, the same people responsible for his, Dr. King's murder, would allow the release of certain sensitive documents? Well, as Frederick Douglass uh, said years ago, power concedes nothing without demand. It never has and it never will. 
So I didn't expect them to release them. They locked up the files on John Kennedy at the time of the Warren Commission for 75 years. The House Select Committee on Assassinations, which covered both Kennedy and King, sealed the files under congressional order for 50 years. Um, but I think that uh, we were able, through public opinion and legislative effort, to, uh, uh, to force them to begin some release of the history that they've stolen from, from us since the inception of the national security state. Um, and Oliver Stone movie got the ball rolling for the JFK release, and public opinion added to that. And because of our, you know, getting those files released, we use that as a skeleton to write the MLK Act, and we also use lessons learned to make the MLK Act have more teeth, make it a better bill. And so because we have the history of getting a bill written, we think, and passed, we think we can do the same thing with King. You know, the, the, the quote I read earlier uh, on the back of an act of State Bill Pepper's book, uh, where he quotes, where, the, where Dr. King is quoted as saying, the greatest purveyor of violence on earth is my own government. In an act of state, Bill Pepper argues that very government violence was turned on America's greatest profit of nonviolent change. That quote came from Ramsey Clark, who was U.S. Attorney General in 67-69. So here we have a former U.S. Attorney General basically conceding the point uh, at least that's the way I read that quote, that uh, the U.S. government was responsible for Dr. King's death. You have the U.S. Attorney well, General... when he was Attorney General in the year when both um, Dr. King and Robert Kennedy were, were killed, he did nothing to move toward an investigation of the real facts in the cases. He made public statements almost immediately that there was no conspiracy. And, uh, you know, he cooperated in the framing, basically, of James O'Reilly and uh, Sirhan Sirhan in these cases. So why the, the uh, about face? Is it a, a you know, a, a, not a deathbed confession, but is he, wh- why, do you, why do you think Ramsey Clark would then do a 180 on that? Well, he's, he's taken more uh, politically progressive positions since that time, uh, for whatever reasons, uh, and maybe he's seen, you know, some new evidence or some error, but the agency he worked for and the Justice Department and the FBI have consistently tried to discredit all of Pepper's work and refused to uh, thoroughly investigate these cases from their inception. I just, uh, but the other interesting point here, uh, a more sort of overarching uh, point, is that when you have a former U.S. Attorney General conceding this point, and maybe it's you know uh, a deathbed type conversion, and yet when you talk to most. Uh, uh, people, the public, uh, whether we're talking about Canadians or Americans, and this is something you've written and, and talked about extensively, John, and that is assassination as a political tool. They tend to, I say they, uh, you know, the citizenry, they tend to balk at that notion. Well, I think you have to know something about the history of political assassination to understand it. And it was originally conceived as a tool for social change by the nihilists and the anarchists, uh, you know, in the 1900s, who thought that by, uh, uh, you know, taking out the leaders, then the masses would rise. Then, in turn, those uh, attempts were uh, both facilitated and crushed by uh, elements of the secret police and agents provocateurs who began began to use political assassination as a way to uh, target their enemies uh, and uh, and then 
there's a long history, of course, of political assassination. I mean, you know, Caesar and others for political purposes within any given society. You have factions that use it. Um, and uh, I don't know to what extent people balk at it. I think about 90% of the public still in polls uh, say that there was a conspiracy to kill President Kennedy, and I doubt they think it was for anything less than political purposes. Um, but uh, there's a pattern that emerges from the evidence itself of patsies being framed in these cases uh, by the government and uh, the truth uh, being buried. Uh, also, strings of witnesses, up to 80 in the Martin Luther King case, key witnesses who died uh, strangely or violently afterwards, many more in the Kennedy assassination. And, uh, you know, I, I think you have to be fairly naive to think that uh, that uh, no government ever uses assassination as one of its tools for its political agendas or its political purposes, uh, or the factions within a government would not do that. Um, but yes, I think assassination is used consciously as a tool of control, and I think that beyond killing these individuals, uh, the civil rights leaders, uh, the people working for social change, their broader purpose was to kill any sense of hope among the population that things could change. Uh, it is interesting that, um, you know, since King's assassination, many, many people would say that the movement for social and economic change has never recovered. Would you concur with that? I think it's certainly been going backwards since that time, and that that was part of the purpose of killing not only uh, King but Malcolm, both of whom were targeted as uh, seen as a threat of a black messiah that could rise up and organize people of color uh, and African Americans specifically. Uh, and uh, they were being surveilled uh, and opposed by not just FBI uh, COINTELPRO programs, but also by CIA Operation Chaos and by Army Intelligence, who began spying on Dr. King's family in the era of his grandfather. Uh, and uh, there was political spying by Army Intelligence from World War I forward. Their files became the basis of Hoover's FBI files that he then used to uh, to go after the in the Palmer raids, the the Reds, and um, you know the COINTELPRO targets, and uh, so they did not understand how to oppose um, these movements for social change and the power of the message of people like Malcolm and King. It was when when Malcolm and Malcolm X and Dr. King began to talk about working together on the poverty issue uh, that they killed Malcolm and. Dr. King, that quote you have there is from a historic speech he gave at Riverside Church a year to the day before he was murdered, where he expanded the issue of racial integration and civil rights to address the three pillars of oppression, as he called them, racism, poverty, and militarism. He spoke out there for the first time in public against the war in Vietnam and uh, called for black youth to resist it, and he laid the groundwork for what would be his call for a poor people's march on Washington, and that put him right in the sights of CIA, FBI, and Army Intelligence. And we have files that came out under the JFK Act and through Freedom of Information Act suits by COPA uh, that show that he was being closely surveilled by all three of those agencies right up to the hour of his death. And some evidence that there were Army sniper units in Memphis who had them in him in their sights had the uh, actual gunman failed, and that actual gunman was not... James O'Reilly. 
Uh, Tamara Carter and John Judge uh, join us here on The Conspiracy Show with the Coalition on Political Assassinations. Uh, uh, Tamara, if, if I throw this one out to, to you, and uh, John, you brought up this interesting um, uh, point about the uh, you know this this death list always after a uh, significant assassination or any assa- there seems to be this accompanying uh, death list of of key people, witnesses, and so forth who seem to uh, disappear or die under mysterious circumstances. Can you add anything to that? Any of the uh, uh, any of the um, any examples of, of of some of these eighty people that uh, died mysteriously? Well, um, with James Earl Ray case, people that died mysteriously, I would definitely say the judges on the case. Um, one of the judges lay dead on one of James Earl Ray's appeals, and the other one dies of a heart attack. So two judges right in a row, and very mysterious deaths. Judge uh, Miller in the Sixth Circuit, uh, who had uh, overseen Battle one of Ray's two. appeals, and taken his side and convinced the other judges to remand the case, uh, was then sitting on the same uh, panel for uh, the reappeal of the remanded suit. And uh, uh, he died of a heart attack. Preston Battle. Yeah, Preston Battle is the one you're talking about that died of a heart attack right afterwards. But Judge Judge Miller, um, who was on the appeal judge in Cincinnati and on Ray's side and asked the best questions, Right before the decision, uh, he dies of a heart attack um, under somewhat suspicious circumstances in a meeting of all the judges in, uh, in a room after a lunch that they had. And um, and then when I got the clerk court slip on the case, they said that the justices had unanimously ruled against uh, Ray, and there was a footnote on Judge Miller's name that said the other two justices had recorded his a vote posthumously. Interesting, interesting. And uh, there were also people like A.D. King, King's brother, who died very strangely in the house, uh, behind the house in a full suit and tie, uh, was found floating dead in the pool. And, of course, you know, King's mother was shot in uh, Memphis by someone that had ties uh, to uh, police intelligence agencies. Yeah, wasn't she shot point blank, John? The mother? Yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah, she was shot in the And church. Ray's death alone, James Earl Ray's death alone, you know, he was stabbed in, in prison. Someone tried to kill him, and then he was given a blood transfusion and um, contra- contacted, um, contacted, pardon me, um, hepatitis C, and so that became a huge problem his entire life, and he eventually died from complications of that stabbing. Louis Lomax, who uh, was a person that worked on... Um, collecting and restoring uh, a lot of the early African-American music and blues music, traveled around the country trying to follow the trail of the uh, King assassination and died in a strange uh, automobile accident. All right, uh, John, Judge, and Tamara Carter, stay where you are. We'll come back and uh, we'll uh, continue to discuss the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. coming up on the 44th anniversary We'll, uh, we'll talk about uh, attempts by the FBI and others to discredit Reverend King and uh, continue to delve into this uh, mystery, uh, myster- mysterious uh, event in history, uh, a tragic event that silenced one of the great agents for nonviolent change. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show here on AM740. Don't go away. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up? 
must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. I don't have but one speech. I don't have but one message as I journey around this country. And it is a message which says I am convinced that the most potent weapon available to oppress people as they struggle for freedom and justice is the weapon of nonviolence. If he doesn't put you in jail, wonderful. Nobody with any sense likes to go to jail. But if he puts you in jail, you go in that jail and transform it from a dungeon of shame to a haven of freedom and human dignity. Welcome back. Uh, we'll uh, speak with uh, Bill Pepper uh, towards the tail end of the program, who was uh, James Earl Ray's last lawyer in the last 10 years of his life. And uh, actually, uh, 10 years prior to that, it, I, I guess it took a while to convince Bill Pepper of... Uh, he had to be convinced of James, Earl's, uh, James Earl Ray's innocence before he would take him on as a client. Um, he finally was convinced of that, of course. Anyway, he'll he'll join us. Uh, it was just a brief conversation I had with him. Uh, the the phone quality is not uh, is not terrific. I, we caught him coming back from a uh, sort of a family event. So, um, but I think you know the, the pertinent information is there. He was very close with Dr. King, and he's really the one that convinced Dr. King, due to some photographs that were taken of the napalm deaths of the children in Vietnam, to speak out against the the war in Vietnam. King felt he couldn't remain silent. And uh, he's also currently the attorney for uh, Sirhan Sirhan. Yes, I, I had... new questions in that case. Indeed, I had the uh, the privilege of uh, meeting and speaking with Bill in New York about a year ago uh, for our TV show, and uh, we discussed uh, Sirhan Sirhan. And that's, again, another fascinating uh, feature. Uh, or aspect of, of Bill's work. Now, but back to the. Uh, let me talk about the FBI files. And uh, there are there are sort of two. Uh, there's the, the main FBI file, and then there's something called the King Levin, Levison file. Uh, tell me about the the King Levison file. What's that all about? There was uh, uh, an informant for the uh, FBI who was making charges that. King was being controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. Made him also for uh, in re- in relation to uh, um, uh, saying that, that that was true of Robert Kennedy as well. And um, they were taking some of these uh, charges uh, seriously. But uh, the FBI had informants all around Dr. King, including it's come out more recently. Um, that one of the main uh, photographers of the civil rights movement who took the famous iconic photos of the I am a man speeches and everything was the entire time, you know, un- under being paid by and reforming on the movement to the FBI. And the usual tactic was to get people to believe that they were helping out because uh, there were communists infiltrating the movement, and so they had to, to stop that. But Hoover was using all of this information and as well as inventing information about King to discredit him to uh, the Kennedys and uh, to the country as a whole. And the the the, the King Levison trial. These are or file. These are these are like transcripts uh, of telephone conversations between King and and I guess Stanley Levison was a what a confidant of King's or. Yes, I think that he worked with uh, King's operation up in New York, but he was. 
suspect because of having some ties with the left himself. Okay, and then the main FBI FBI file, which is something like what seventeen thousand pages of materials. There's something like six to seven hundred thousand pages in the House Select Committee files. My word. And, and this uh, Levison, you know, tapes. There's nine reels of surveillance tapes in it. Are they heavily redacted? I'm guessing. Yes, heavily. But there's a lot of information in this King Levison file too. And the, the, the main FBI file with at least the 17,000 pages of materials, uh, what, uh, and this was what, from, from what period to what period did they, these, these files cover? Obviously up until his death, but how far back would, was King being surveilled? Well, like I said, Army Intelligence was surveilling his family, um, you know, from the grandfather's era uh, and the father. Um, FBI focus on him really comes in the you know in the uh, in the sixties when uh, you know in, uh, when when the civil rights movement is at its peak, but um, you know I don't know I, I haven't got dates in my head of that particular okay. file you're talking about. Well, but, I um, think it's the, I think it really starts to escalate after the um, speech about Vietnam in '67. Yeah, well that's uh, that's where he comes you know completely. Uh, most of the images that we have of Dr. King is him standing on the steps and, you know, years earlier uh, with the the I Have a Dream speech in the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, but uh, that King is much safer to the system in in certain ways than the King who begins to address the other issues about poverty and militarism. A a lot of the the information from the FBI wiretaps is not going to be released until something like 2027. Now, you've had, both of you had experience in, you know, with FOIA and so forth, and, but how do they pick these dates? In, I mean, is there a significance? I mean, are, are they waiting for some key person to be, uh, you know, dead and gone so that they couldn't be uh, implicated? Or wh- why do they, wh- how do they pick these dates? Usually that's the sense, is that, is that if they wait 50, 75 years, all of the key people who might be compromised by it or whose reputation might be ruined will have passed on, and then they'll just be historical records. Um, the 50-year rule is a standard rule for the uh, the House, uh, for the sealed files, and can be invoked by the chairs of the committee, which was done in the House Select Committee case. And since it stopped in 78, then you just add 50 years to that to get the 2028 you're talking about. Um, Although um, the JFK Act overrode that, uh, and those files were, you know, were released um, much earlier, and even the files that they postponed are to be released in 2017, although the agencies are still fighting some of them and trying to create these files that are not able to be reviewed. Um, I'm not quite sure why 75 years is what Johnson picked for the Warren Commission files, but I think you're right. The the basic theme is that at, at the point that they're released, they'll just be in different historical records and won't take someone out of office, won't impeach anybody, won't lead to criminal charges against anybody. Uh, Hoover seemed to have a particular hate on for, for Dr. King, or or am I speculating? Or No, it seemed he does, did not like him. He called him the you know biggest liar in the country, and you know, I think Hoover, in general, distrusted any sort of social change movement 
the uh, that went after you know um, uh, the ills of the society. And uh, he said at one point, "We have dossiers on 50 million Americans, and we have to close the gap." <laughs> and he was just operating out of a lot of uh, paranoia and a lot of reactionary politics. And uh, you know, King uh, was a threat to them. Um, you know, and but I mean, he. He also tried to blackmail the Kennedys and many other people. That's how the FBI came into existence. He uh, had his investigators, when the Congress didn't want to make them into a federal agency, his investigators went out and got dirt on the congressman and came back and said, now do you, you want this released? Do you want to vote us into office, you know, and make us an official agency of the government? So uh, he, had, he had used that sort of uh, scandal mongering and blackmail to get a lot of what uh, he wanted done and controlled the situation and tried to control the Kennedys with it as well. Uh, there is um, some suggestion that uh, that Hoover's vendetta, uh, had a personal vendetta against King that uh, had its roots in, I guess, his own lineage, that his grandfather, I, I believe, was once classified in the census as, a, as being an African-American. Any truth to that? I haven't heard it, but I mean... I haven't heard I, anything like that before ever. I mean, there's... In America, I mean, there's very few people that don't have some mixture of, of Caucasian and African-American heritage, regardless of how we think about ourselves. Uh, I think uh, one of the black scholars uh, just did a book uh, saying that about 25% of, um, you know... Uh, his own makeup turned out to be Caucasian. So I think from both sides, people expect that they're sort of racially um, isolated or pure, but um, the reality is different. Yeah, even I had my DNA run last year, and I'm between an eighth and a quarter sub-Saharan African, so 16% sub-Saharan African and then 84% European, and I do not look at it at all. Ah, but and but you didn't try to cover it up the way that uh, that Hoover did apparently. Exactly so. not. I I didn't know that about him though. That is some new information. Very interesting. But I um, I think that it it was more um, you know uh, Hoover's own just reactionary politics and also Division Five of the FBI, uh, William Sullivan, Carthage Deke Deloach, and the COINTELPRO program were focused on the anti-war movement and the. Uh, civil rights movement and the rise of any kind of militants, uh, CIA chaos, and within the Army, Operation Garden Plot was a martial law plan to incarcerate and respond to any major social uprising. And the people spying on Dr. King were a subcategory of that called uh, Operation Lantern Spike, which was supposed to be an anti-riot um, uh, unit within Operation Garden Plot. Uh, these, these were, I mean, they had, they had uh, a guy that later became the head of FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency, Gufrida, brought in by Reagan. His Army War College thesis was on how you could uh, incarcerate, round up and incarcerate in concentration camps all 11 million uh, African Americans in the, in the United States. Uh, talk to me about, uh, again, this goes out to uh, uh, either of you, Tamara Carter or John Judge, the, the FBI's attempts uh, to discredit uh, the civil rights leader, um, in, in, including, uh, you know, a uh, uh, mock-up of, of photographs where he would be seen, you know, uh, in compromising positions with, with women and, and so forth. 
Yeah, and also included in this was a series of tapes with him having relations outside of his marriage, and those tapes were sent to Coretta Scott King, and they were meant to humiliate him so then he would commit suicide. So they were trying to get him to off himself. They wrote a, wrote a letter, uh, you know, um, to him saying, you know, you've got one choice, kill yourself or these will come out. Uh, and it's not clear to this day that they were actually tapes of, of King. They might have been taken in his bedroom, but it wasn't necessarily him in the bedroom with the other woman. And Coretta always said that no matter how many they sent her, that she would never believe it and she wouldn't let it, let it affect he or she. I think there's some feeling, some worry that if these files are released, that they will dig up some sort of dirt on Dr. King. But I think you have to consider the source of the dirt, Hoover's agents and what their agenda was. And also, uh, King is a human being. And um, I don't think you take away all of his work and all of his legacy uh, because he, he had some spiritual or moral failing if he did. Um, you know, I, I think uh, the balance of the dirt in those files is going to be on the U.S. government, not on Dr. King. And uh, I think that we need to release them. I wouldn't mind giving the King family say, as they did with some files recently released on Ted Kennedy. They went to his family and said, do you have any problem with these things being released? They could do that with the King family if they had some personal information about him, true or not, that they felt was you know, too damning to release or would embarrass him. You know, um, That's not what we're looking for in the historical record. Right. You know, it's interesting, uh, and, and I don't know if, if the... The this FBI project or program to discredit King um, had a name, but um, I, I note here that Wesley Snipes um, was actually planning to produce a film, and it was called Code Name Zorro, which would That's revol- the title of Mark uh, Lane and uh, Dick Gregory's first Gregory's uh, book. Yeah. Okay, and this is this Code Name Zorro was. Huh? supposed to be the, the Hoover's secret campaign to discredit MLK. Mm-hmm. And I just find it interesting that as Snipes was planning to produce this film, uh, you know, he's sent up the river uh, by the IRS. Any co- coincidence? <laughs> yeah. You know, isn't that amazing? There hasn't been a film made on King yet. Yeah, that's right. In fact, at one point, I think Oliver Stone bought the rights to um, Pepper's book, but then because of some disagreements, didn't produce a movie from it. An act of state, I believe. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, so that never, Oliver Stone didn't succeed. Wesley Snipes. Several small filmmakers have tried. No one succeeded as of yet. There was a movie about Sirhan that was, um, you know, some of the uh, people that were to be uh, to act in it were killed and uh, threatened. You know, so uh, what gets out through Hollywood is very much uh, controlled generally politically and otherwise, but uh, there is certainly a, a movie about King that could be made based on the new evidence that came out at the civil trial, and um, and in these uh, books that uh, Dr. Pepper has worked on, and the other uh, critics that started all the way back at the time in 68, you have early books by, uh, like Frame Up by Harold Weisberg, who had done work on the Kennedy case, and um, so there's no lack of critical information out there, and then the, the files that have been released just uh, bolster it. But COINTELPRO used that, what they called bad jacketing, ruin reputations, um, and uh, turning people against each other, 
with rumors and that sort of thing. That was standard fare for the, how they would attack people. And Hoover tried to discredit many, many people um, and tried to keep people from getting printed or... All right. I hear the, the music creeping up underneath us here, so uh, that's telling me we'll, uh, we'll get away to a break, come back, continue our discussion. A few more questions remain for John Judge and Tamara Carter as we discuss the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. here on The Conspiracy Show. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Again, uh, Bill Pepper will join us uh, shortly. A few moments remain with John Judge and Tamara Carter with the Coalition on Political Assassinations. Uh, just, just a quick aside, uh, but it, it is interesting, you know, talking about assassination as a, a political tool, uh, that we have arrived at a day and age now where the U.S. administration openly admits that the president has the authority to order the assassination of U.S. citizens without due process. Well, they, um, they're saying that he, he has the capability and power to do that, but they won't confirm that they're actually doing it. Um, but uh, we have instances of U.S. citizens being... Um, you know, killed in these drone things for alleged relations with al-Qaeda or crimes. Um, and then the new Defense, uh, Defense Authority Act um, makes it possible to detain people pretty much without trial if they're suspected of having some link to terrorist organizations or supporting them or taking part in acts. So it, it's getting more and more draconian. Uh, but yes, you're right. I mean, it's at a point where they don't even seem to want plausible deniability um, for the fact that they will assassinate people. And um, I, I don't know. I'm sorry I missed the first part of the show, but I, you know, I, I think if anybody, I went to the rooming house that's supposed to have been the scene of the crime, and there was no way that anyone in that bathroom window could have gotten a shot out the window to where King was standing. Uh, King's response to the shot seen by the one guy who was still up on the balcony. Um, uh, clearly, uh, Joseph Lowey, a filmmaker who had, it turns out, CIA pay, but um, he said that when Dr. King was hit, his feet lifted up off the balcony and he was spun to his right. Well, this rooming house is to, to his right and above him, so which would have knocked him down, not upwards, and spun him to his left. Um, Dr. Francisco, uh, Jerry Francisco, and uh, the medical examiner uh, who dealt with King's body removed the bullet but refused to do an autopsy, supposedly out of concern for the family that could have traced the root of the bullet through the body and uh, given some forensic or ballistic information uh, that probably would have also exonerated Ray. Uh, The FBI did not do even a test to see if the rifle they picked up and the bundle had been fired. And it was planted there. The owner of the amusement store said that the person leaving the rifle off did so before he heard the shot fired. Um, 
and uh, yes. the, the hard evidence just makes it impossible that that Ray uh, did the shooting. Uh, whereabouts are you in? I mean, I know that uh, uh, it was a Judge Joe Brown uh, back in the late '90s had um, ordered this weapon to be retested. Where are we? I mean, what what needs to be done now in, in, in your in your mind, both of your minds? Well, unfortunately, the weapon in a secret deal that was made with the Civil Rights Museum was removed uh, from uh, the courthouse and uh, taken to the museum, and it's on display in a case. The problem is when you don't have chain of evidence or providence, um, you know, it, 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 it tends to make any, uh, in other words, a current test of the rifle. We'd still like to do it, but that, that would be tainted with the fact that the rifle had been moved, and we don't know what's physically been done the to the rifle since then. Right. So it wouldn't be legally valid, but we still want to have it tested just and cleaned. The main thing is the testing was incomplete, as Judge Joe Brown says. We need to have it cleaned and retested, but like John Judge just says, it broke the chain of custody. They they made a secret deal, like John said, and they took it out in the middle of the night. They transported it, so no one knew it was happening until after it happened. You have James Earl Ray being exonerated in this in, the, in, a, in a mock TV trial, which had you know a prosecutor and witnesses and a, and, and a jury. You well, had also exonerated in a an yes, actual civil trial. That's in right. In this in the in the wrongful death suit. Uh, uh, where the King family was awarded the the one hundred dollars, but but so what? And yet, despite that, and despite the evidence uh, that, that that's that's been um, offered up on this program and countless others, in the books, in Tamara's uh, uh, book, A Memoir of Injustice, and yet, if you ask the average person in the street, they will just mindlessly say, "Yes, James Earl Ray uh, uh, did it." I mean, well, is that the, the you, civil trial, which should have been on court TV, uh, had two journalists present the entire time and got absolutely no coverage outside of a small article in the New York Times trying to discount the decision. But you're right, Richard, the average person. Everyone, I, I tell somebody I you know, wrote this book, and the average person will say, oh, James already did it. They find it so hard to believe that he didn't. But once they read the book, they're totally convinced. But it's such in the public psyche. It's a myth. It's a legend, and it won't go away. And if in 2027 uh, FBI files released that, uh, I don't know, somehow prove that it, or, or they admit that it wasn't James Earl Ray, it, it'll be a footnote in history. It'll, it'll almost be too late. Well, as part of the reason that we've been pushing since, uh, you know, 2001, when we drafted the first Martin Luther King Records Act, uh, helping Cynthia McKinney get it in, and then um, it failed to move before she went out of office. Uh, she put it back in and 2007, um, and it still didn't get into committee. And in 2009, uh, both uh, Senator John Kerry, who had helped to create a Senate companion bill at the time the person was drafted, and Congressman John Lewis, civil rights activist with Dr. King, and a previous co-sponsor of the bill, said that they were going to um, reintroduce the exact same act, but to date have not done so. Uh, I also discovered that the clerk of the House, based on a letter from the previous clerk in 78, has the authority on her own say-so to release the, um, at least the House Select Committee files on Dr. King. The Records Act goes much further than that. It's federal, state, local, sealed court files, and international uh, files um, from other countries. 
that we're seeking to release, like the JFK Act did, and a much broader definition of what's a related file, and also files about his life, not just about his death. Um, so it's much broader. But the, the House Select Committee files uh, could be released uh, on the say-so of the Clerk of the House, uh, and it's been uh, approached, and you know we're being told it's under consideration, but nothing is moving. But we think that they should. It'll be the 45th anniversary next year. Uh, President uh, Obama, when he came into office, said that all classified records uh, 30 years or older should be released immediately without agency review, and that's not being implemented either. Um, but uh, there's no reason that these files from so such a long time ago uh, would hold anything uh, important. They may embarrass some people. We may find out, like uh, I think the guy's name was Withers, this photographer, was an informant. We might find out that other people in the civil rights movement were informants who are still uh, you know, in, in public positions or active. Um, but, uh, you know, outside of that embarrassment, if it was a lone assassin, then what is uh, the national security interest in concealing them? Bingo. Listen, uh, John Judge and uh, Tamara Carter, I really appreciate your, your time tonight, and uh, I wish you uh, Godspeed and good luck with your continued efforts to get those files released. Thank you, Richard. We appreciate all you do. Thanks. Uh, PoliticalAssassinations.com is our website, and uh, we're going out on April the 4th for an all-day vigil uh, at the New King Memorial here in D.C. to call for release of the records. Yes, come see Dick Gregory and myself. Yes? Terrific. Thank you, Tamara. Thank you Thank, thank you very thank much. You. Thank you, John. All right. Uh, William Francis Pepper is uh, coming up... Uh, Let's 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 get to that uh, that interview now. I spoke with uh, William Pepper uh, earlier today, and of course, uh, uh, obviously, a, a man who has dedicated a great deal of his life, the last twenty five years, really, in trying to uh, exonerate James, James Earl Ray. He did so in a civil trial in Memphis in nineteen ninety nine, and uh, uh, here's how that interview sounded. William Francis Pepper is an attorney based in New York City. He's most noted for his efforts to prove the innocence of James Earl Ray in the assassination of Martin Luther King. He is the author of An Act of State, the Execution of Martin Luther King, which was published in 2008, the 40th anniversary of Martin Luther King's uh, death. Uh, William, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? <laughs> I'm okay, thank you. All right, uh, take us back to uh, December 1999. The, uh, the jury in this civil trial uh, comes back after four weeks uh, hearing uh, over 70 witnesses, and what happens? Yes. They came back? Yes, they came, yes, they came back with a verdict after 59 minutes. And the verdict was? The, the verdict was that Martin King had been killed. Hello? Hello, yes. Yeah, Martin, Martin, do you want me to tell you what the verdict was? If you could, please, yes. Martin King has been Martin King had been killed by agents of the government of the United States, the state of Tennessee and the city of Memphis, and that Lloyd Towers was 
a conspirator in that assassination and that James and Ray had no knowing involvement in the assassination. Now, Lord Jowers, who was the owner of Jim's Grill, he testified uh, by deposition, did he not? I'm sorry? Uh, Jowers, the owner of Jim's Grill, he had testified, yeah. he testified by deposition, is that correct? Jowers testified by deposition, and uh, he also made other statements which his lawyer provided. He also provided the, uh, the name of the actual shooter. It was a Memphis police officer. Tell me about him. Well, Lloyd Jowers, Lloyd Jowers never named the actual shooter. Uh, I believe we know who the shooter was, but Jowers never named him. And you believe... He, uh, uh, he indicated that the shooter was uh, Earl Clark, who was a sharpshooter with the Memphis Police Department. Now, Earl Clark <clears throat> was back in the bushes with Jowers and did run over and jump over the wall and run up Mulberry Street and flee. But I do not believe that Earl Clark was the actual shooter. I believe that he was fully involved as a conspirator and um, that he has responsibility in every way, but I don't believe he was the actual shooter. I think, I think Lloyd, Lloyd at the time was protecting the actual shooter who, who was and is alive. Is alive to this day. Yes. When you talk about, uh, and, and again, in this civil trial, it was uh, the King family versus Lloyd Jowers and other unknown conspirators. Are you, yes. are you now confident that, that you know who the other unknown conspirators <laughs> likely were? Uh, basically, yes. Um, uh, you know, in these kinds of cases, you never have absolute proof about all of the details. And I think we have come to the point where we know enough uh, about the assassination that we can say, yes, we, we, we basically know what happened. And this will be set out in the third book, that I'm, in the final book that I have to do on this case. Now, in, uh, you, you met uh, Dr. King. He contacted you after you had published a number of photographs uh, entitled The Children of Vietnam that, that, uh, that ran in the Ramparts magazine. He contacted you shortly after that. Uh, how well did you get yeah. to know Dr. King? Sorry? How well did you get to know Dr. King? I got to know him quite well over that last year. Do you believe that after seeing those photos, that's what really uh, ignited Dr. King's passion regarding uh, the war in Vietnam. Yeah, I, I, I believe that was really the turning point. He, he, he can come out with questions uh, and an opposition before 
But when he saw the photograph of the devastation on the children and the innocent civilians of Vietnam, I think that that, that was the coup de grace for Martin. He had to, as a man of enor enormous conscience and moral integrity, he had to come out against the war. Is it, is it your belief, then, that it was um, his uh, speaking out against the war in Vietnam that ultimately led to the conspiracy to kill him? I think his op I think his opposition to the war was a major reason for his killing. I think the primary reason for his killing was his intention, his commitment to lead two million people into Washington in a nonviolent demonstration to alter the face and the policies of American government. One of the people that you put on the stand, uh, you, you, various members of the, uh, of the King family, uh, including uh, Coretta Scott King. Yes. Do you feel that she spoke out publicly uh, <laughs> enough questioning the official version of, of who ultimately killed her husband, who was responsible for his death? Or was she? Was she I think the King family have found a degree of peace and solace in what we have uncovered and what the evidence we put forward. Um, that cannot bring Martin back. It it has to enhance his legacy. Um, my goal. My goal was to. Uh, attempt to get at the truth and to attempt to show the innocence of James Earl Ray, who was an unknowing patsy. And in that sense, James was also a victim of, of this whole conspiracy and operation. You were his last lawyer, the last lawyer for James Earl Ray. Are you convinced? Yeah, he I represented... I represented James for 10 years, but I refused to represent him for 10 years before that until I became convinced that he had no knowing role in the assassination of Martin King. Was he a racist? Sorry? Was James Earl Ray a racist? No, James was not a racist. Any more than <laughs> any any white guy, any any white guy from most areas of of northern northern America certainly wasn't a racist. I had nothing to do with it. James Earl Ray's escape from prison was orchestrated in 1967 by the government of the United States. And J. Edgar Hoover, who sent $25,000 to the Dixie Mafia guys who had the connection with the warden, and, and the, carrier of the, the carrier of that money was Clyde Tolson. 
And this is something we have just learned over the course of the last few years. And the whole purpose was James was profiled as an, as an ideal penalty. Money was sent in to help his escape from prison. And then they attempted to move him around and control him during uh, his time on the run. That's what went on in this case. Uh, 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 Bill, I wish we had more time. I want to thank you for uh, for joining us tonight. And um, again, as we commemorate the 44th yeah. uh, anniversary. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm sorry. I have a variety of family and other obligations and commitments. I'm trying to help as best I can. I do appreciate please, it. Please carry, on, please carry on your good work. Let's see if we can get the truth in these cases. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Good night. All right. Uh, that uh, just about uh, wraps it for another edition of The Conspiracy Show. And I hope you enjoyed our commemorating the 44th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Next week on the program, Arthur Mac Maloney believes he's got proof UFOs exist. And he makes this controversial claim in his new book, UFOs in Wartime, What They Didn't Want You to Know, from accounts of UFOs being spotted by pilots in World War II to strange episodes in the Korean War and stories of UFOs aiding George Washington in the American Revolution. Mac Maloney and, of course, Victor Vigiani joins me as well. Hope you'll be along for that. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. Selecting A. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.